get some sense of how long this pandemic has been when we see people who have all of a sudden become very mature and grown up and gotten taller. And the amazing part is even though you guys look like you've all grown up, the rest of us just like, we look like we used to, right? We don't look any older, do we? We don't look older, do we? Good, good answer. I love that story of Esther. Every time we sort of tell it again, I, I just enjoy it some more. And um, one of the relationships in the, in the context of our Christian faith that is most difficult to navigate is the relationship that we have with Jewish people. So the relationship with the Jewish faith, um, between the Christian faith and the Jewish faith, is always challenging, exhilarating, and confusing at times. Many, many years ago, um, we had a neighbor across the street from us who was Jewish. We've had Jewish neighbors at several places. And um, Esther was her name. And one time her mom and dad came to visit her. And Annabeth was walking with Esther and her mom and dad. And at that time, Annabeth's sister Eunice was studying in Jerusalem. And as they were talking, Annabeth said to Esther's dad, who knows Maybe my sister will come home with a nice Jewish husband. And he looked at her in horror and said, that's just the problem. Too many of our nice Jewish boys are marrying Gentiles. And I think for the first time in our lives, we felt like Gentiles. But um, th th that's just a little illustration of, of kind of the, the discomfort that we have with one another, not knowing how we really relate to the Jewish faith, how we relate to the nation of Israel, and um, what we're supposed to say, what we're not supposed to say, and it continues to this day. So as we think about this whole story of Esther, there was the complete possibility that the Jewish people would be eliminated. That was, and Susan, I'm sure Debbie is right, it's Haman, right? That sounds more Jewish than Haman. So we'll go with Haman from this point on. Okay. Thanks, Debbie. Here's the setup for what we're talking about today. Here's what Haman says. He goes to the king. He says, there's a certain people scattered and dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of all other people, and they do not observe the king's laws. So if it, it is not in the king's interest to let them remain. If it is pleasing to the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed. There was the possibility of the elimination of the Jewish people. That has been repeated in history. And the existence of the nation of Israel, um, you know, plotted by this man because of his hatred not only of the man Mordecai, but who Mordecai represents, because Haman is from the Agag descendants, and so he's one of the Amalekites who hate the Israelites, and the Israelites did not do what they ought to have done to eliminate the Amalekites. And so we have these um, little factions, and here we have this guy sort of popping up, and out of his, his selfish ambition and hatred and the fact that he is scorned, um, he, he just can't stomach that 
Everybody else bows and scrapes, and this one guy refuses, and that's the one guy that is turning Haman's head and heart. And Haman says, let's get rid of him and all of his people. And if he had been successful, he would have wiped out the Jewish race. Interesting. The Jewish people continue to exist, and they have continued to thrive. And as Christians, we are particularly fascinated with the Jewish people, and we try to understand what the relationship is between that people and the covenant people of which we claim to be a part. And so those in the Jewish faith um, dispute our right to be calling ourselves people in a covenant relationship with God because the God that they think that we worship is not the God that they think is their God. And, and so we have lively conversations, sometimes debates, um, sometimes divisions over this whole thing. I want to go back today and give you just a little, probably, review of some of the theology of the Bible concerning the nation of Israel. And I have been all over the map um, in eschatology. Eschatology is the, is the doctrine of last things. And uh, it's the doctrine that makes people say they're post-millennial, pre-millennial, all-millennial, post-tribulational, mid-tribulational, pre-tribulational, dispensational, covenant, all, all those ways that we dice and slice our theology come down to our understanding of the nature of the people of Israel, the nature of the nation of Israel, and of the Jewish faith. In many ways, I, I, I think I've stayed with and maybe returned to my dispensational roots. So I'll just sort of show my cards here a little bit this morning because there's some things about dispensationalism that I can't get away from. Now, dispensationalism is, is not a very popular view. It is a popular view probably more in the Pentecostal movement and in some of the forms of evangelicalism that we were raised in. Some of you will remember Tony Campolo, not remember him, but know who he is and was. And um, for, for some reason, there were, uh, I think, three events in a row that I was with Tony Campolo. And one of them was here in Toronto. I can't remember where, where the others were. And he went to the same college as I did. So that was, at that point, Philadelphia School of the Bible, which is the hotbed of dispensationalism. The Schofield Bible is the Bible from the founder of that school, and it is the dispensational Bible. So if you want to be well-versed in the whole history of how we got here, um, that's a big part of how we got here. At one point, um, in the second or third time, Tony rem remembered me, I think, because we've been to the same school. So and, and he was a very outspoken person, is a very outspoken person. So he looked at me and he said, have you repented of your dispensationalism yet? Yeah, that's pretty provocative, right? And I, I said, well, a bit. And he said, what do you mean a bit? I said, well, I'm, I'm trying to fight my way with all of this. What's at stake in the whole thing? What brings me back full circle or to stay with my roots in that area and, and 
you know, many things in my thinking shift and, and become and all of that. But there's some math in the Bible that I can't get away from, which is a terrible predicament because I always try to get away from math. And here it comes up in the Bible. And I'm not going to go through and explain it all to you, but the, the features of the mathematics of the Bible um, come down to counting times. And at some other point, we may have some chance to really work through the, the 70 weeks of Daniel. So the, the weeks of Daniel are a very big part of biblical prophecy. And in the book of Daniel, there is a prophecy about 70 weeks that describe the whole passage of time. That 70 weeks, and they, they, are, they, they are started at a particular point in history when a certain edict is spoken, and from that point on, the clock begins to tick for 70 weeks. And those 70 weeks are, are pieced off into a few sections. But the story of Daniel is that the 70th week of Daniel, um, the 70th week of his vision and prophecy, is still in the future. So a week in Daniel's prophecy is seven years, and um, we'll, we'll explain some other time why that's all so. But if you multiply those 70 weeks into weeks of years being seven years each, you can account for 69 of those weeks. The Messiah plays into that, that whole timetable. But when you count out those years, there's a week still missing, and it would be a week again of seven years. So all of the story of Daniel's prediction has taken place except for the last piece of seven years. If that were the only time we encountered that, I might have been able to accommodate it somehow into how I understand the whole unfolding of the future. But there's more to it than that, that, more to it than just the story of Daniel, um, because we also come into the book of Revelation and find in the book of Revelation, and it is very hard to understand. The book of Revelation is an apocalyptic book, and apocalypse means hidden. It's, it's almost like there, it's a secret knowledge book that we, we read and we think, what does that mean? I mean, is that, that can't be literal, can it? Or maybe it is. If it is literal, what would that look like? So we, we work our way through and try to understand that lovely piece of literature. It is, it's incredibly artistic and, and graphic. But in the book of Revelation, we come across some time being counted there's the identification of a period of time of 42 months. And you think, well, is, is 42 months a figure of something? Is that an image of something? Is it a symbol of something? Well, it doesn't seem to be because even though many other things are clearly symbolic or um, just apocalyptic, why that number? It's, it's not a special number, we would think. And... If that wasn't enough, when we read more in Revelation, not only is there the identification of 
42 months as a period of time during which certain things, clear and unclear, will happen. But we're told that there is a period of time of 1260 days. Now, students, how many months are in 1260 days? Quick. Don't tell me you don't know. How many? Four? You sure? How many? It took Orville to get the right answer with all of these bright students over here. Again, man. 1,260 days is the same as 42 months. And then the same period of time, although described in a different way, is identified as a time times and half a time. What might that be? When you go at time, well, that, that seems one. Times is at least two. And half a times is half. How many years would a time, times, and half a time be? Three and a half, right? I'm, I'm sorry to be doing so much math in church. Three and a half years is how many days? 1260. How many months? 42. All right. So you see where I'm going. There's a period of time that is identified, counted differently, but it seems to be a, a fixed, a particular period of time during which events take place. There's also the clear description in the book of Revelation of a period of time that is seven years. So that brings us back to the beginning and Daniel's prophecy, which was a prophecy of 70 weeks of seven years, if we accept that, and get all the way around to a period of time that is a period of time called seven years. That's what we now call the, the tribulation period. So the question of whether you're a pre-tribulationist, a mid-tribulationist, a post-tribulationist has to do with when Jesus comes back and will he come back before that last seven years, in the middle of that last seven years, or at the end of that last seven years. We could complicate it even further by saying, and then there's a period of a thousand years. Now, a thousand could easily be considered as just a symbolic use of a number because a thousand comes back to the Bible where we're told a day is as a thousand years, a thousand years as a day, and we may, might be able to sort of pass that off and say, for some other time, we actually will pass it off. But again, it's a period of time that we're thinking, okay, is that on the calendar? But back to this whole set of constructions, there is a period of time of seven years, and if we sort of divide that up, it seems to be divided into two parts. So there is a period of three and a half years and a second period of three and a half years that the prophecies of the Bible seem to identify as particular times in the future. And it is called the times of Jacob's trouble in the prophecies. The time of Jacob's trouble. Jacob is Israel. It's a reference to the nation of Israel. And in Bible prophecy, it appears as though there is something that is on the calendar that has to do with the prophecy of 
Israel's history, culminating in the last week that hasn't taken place yet, that is the tribulation period, that is the time of Jacob's trouble. All of that to bring us back to the question, what is our relationship with Israel? And what is our understanding of Israel? One fairly prevalent view is that when Christ came, he came to fulfill the law entirely. And there is only one version of the way God is moving the future forward. And it is the version of Christ presenting himself to both Jew and Gentile as the savior of the world. So all of the distinctions that we might have had before, and we might have thought about um, God's covenant people, the church, we would identify ourselves, and God's covenant people of Israel that used to have two different identities, they now merge into one, and there's only one new person. That's the theology of the New Testament. In Christ, there's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither Jew nor Gentile, male nor female, bond or free, right? But as I say, the thing that keeps sort of wandering around in the back of my head is the dispensational view that there is still something that has to take place for God to finish off his relationship with the nation of Israel. That it's not just as simple as are they or are they not, you know, sort of grouped in with the new covenant people. So I'm suggesting that the Bible seems to indicate that there is yet business that has to do with Israel, that it has not been folded into God's eternal purpose totally because God still has something that he is interested in doing with the nation of Israel. That's why some parts of the evangelical faith are fascinated with Israel. That's why some politics in the United States, for example, are enmeshed in the view that America has of Israel. That's why questions are asked about how presidents are going to relate to the nation of Israel. It's how we understand what the world's view is of the capital of Israel being Jerusalem as opposed to Tel Aviv. It's how we sort through how we understand the use of the city of Jerusalem and um, the fact that it is the sort of the home base of three peoples of faith, of Islam, Judaism, and Christianity. Um, it, it brings the... Uh, the terrible conflict that has predominated in, in that region for all of these years and all of the fighting that continues to go on. It brings us to questions about the, the actual possession of the land. I remember being on an airplane, sitting beside a person who uh, lived in on the Gaza Strip. And he, when we got off the airplane, uh, he, we, we had been talking and he said, you know, when, when you get off the plane, you, you'll be free just to get on the tour bus and, and go all through, th through Israel. I can't. I have to have a visa to get from the airport back to the Gaza Strip because I'm Palestinian. And it's not my land. When we got off the airplane, he got on his knees and kissed the ground. Not likely that we do that when we get to Toronto, right? 
But see, it is part of our religious thinking, it's part of our political thinking, it's part of our world if affairs kind of thinking, the whole matter of, well, what is Israel to us and what are we to Israel? So we'll go all the way back just for a moment today to how it all started. And I've been reminded again um, of, of this lovely piece of a psalm that I've introduced to you and suggested it's a great way to start the day and end the day. Um, and this morning I was watching the morning star rise and I thought, like even the morning star is kind of a witness to God's faithfulness. So this psalm, this little couplet recurs in the psalms over and over that the beginning of the day is a good time for us to reflect on the covenant loyalty of God, the chesed of God. And the end of the day is a great time to reflect on how faithful he has been to his covenant. So thinking about covenant brings us back to the major covenants of the Bible, um, one of which is the Abrahamic covenant in which God promised Abraham that he would bless the whole world through him. All families in the earth would be blessed because of Abraham. Genesis chapter 12. And I think that is what gives us kind of our context for understanding the current um, place of the nation of Israel and the future events that have to do with the nation of Israel. God began something with Abraham that he's going to tidy up. And, and that's a, a, an understatement and it's it's probably not very appropriate to describe the events because it's a tumultuous time that the Bible talks about. When it's called the time of Jacob's trouble, it will be the time of Jacob's trouble. All of history has shown us the Hamans of humankind, the hatred without cause for a nation. There is hatred still without cause for a nation. It has caused those even in our country of Jewish faith to be wary of a Christian view of their faith, um, of a Christian um, acceptance of their faith and of their nation and so on. Um, but it, 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 it really is the overarching story of the Bible that God has made covenants and he's working out his purposes according to his covenants, one of which was his covenant with Israel. And I think that the math that has been wandering around in my head is saying it's not finished yet. That I think we cannot just say it's Israel and the church all in one in Christ. Christ is the one who was delivered as the Messiah. And the most delightful of realities in this whole context is those who have discovered Jesus as their Messiah. And so some of the lovely traditions culturally of Judaism, when they are played out into a, a completed Jewish person or someone who is messianic, um, they become lovely. So that their understanding of uh, the Lord's table, for example, in the context of Passover uh, is, is just full. And, and vibrant, and many of those traditions, uh, we you know we watch and and admire. 
I think that there are three ways that we should sort of describe our relationship with Israel. And in saying that, I'll just sort of tidy this up and come back to this notion of God as a, as a covenant keeper. The first is there was actually, while I was in school, there was a, an organization called the Friends of Israel, which was made up of um, um, completed Jews or Messianic Jews, whatever you like, people of the Jewish faith who found Jesus as their Messiah and who would then spend their time trying to reach their fellow Jewish folks with the message of Jesus as the Messiah. Our relationship to Israel, I think, should be properly said we are friends of Israel. We're not friends of Israel to the exclusion of friendship with Palestine. And we're not friends of Israel to the point that we say whatever Israel does is right because they are Israel. But we are people who say the Jewish people were God's first people. They really were the beginning of it all. And the work of God in behind the drama of Esther um, is just testimony to the fact that God was watching and acting. And again, curiously, without his name even being mentioned in the book, God was raising an, an Esther to the throne simply because he wanted to honor his commitment, his covenant to Israel. And he was not going to allow the obliteration of his, his covenant people. So we are friends of Israel in, in the, the large-hearted, um, best way that we can imagine. Um, that when we find someone who is of the Jewish faith, there's a particular interest in our minds and in our hearts because of that fact. The second thing is that we, we do believe in a future for Israel. Um, we, we don't feel as though it has been merged into something completely, but that there is a future for Israel. And because there is a future for Israel, I think there is an appropriate focus on Israel. Um, back in the 70s, lots and lots of Christian conferences and seminars and workshops were all about that. And we've sort of let that slide a bit. But if we're to understand what is going on in our world, looking to Israel is a good place to start. Um, I received the Jerusalem Post, and I understand its perspective, I understand its politics, but I, I do that because I think as Israel goes and as the world views Israel, so goes the future of our world. It, it's not a world with a, by the way, Israel, but it's a world with uh, Israel is still in the focus. The reason that Haman hated Mordecai and the Jews, the reason that Hitler tried to exterminate the Jews, the reason that there is anti-Semitism and particularly an anti-Jewish sort of flavor in much of our world would say, why? Why Why do they, why does this nation draw the attention and the anger and the hatred of people so much? If Satan is the Lord of the world and he knows that God has favored a people to provide through that people 
his great solution, then Satan will be at his wit's end to to bring everything he can against the progress of that nation. So we understand that. Um, and so we focus on Israel and say, we along with Paul say, I wish that all Israel would be saved. And then Paul says, all Israel will be saved. And I think there is business that God has with Israel that is different than the business God has with us, that there are still, in a sense, two ways that God is dealing with people. The rest of us, and to be faithful to his covenant, I think God wants to say, now Israel, we're not finished. Um, I think there is a provision for Israel that God will bring in the context of the tribulation period. So it's, 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 it's not a happy reality, but it is, a, it is a merciful reality that God is saying, still Israel, there is between us some business to be finished. The seven years of the tribulation are difficult years. And much of the effect of, of the tribulation period will, will be the impact that it has on Israel. And so we focus on that and wonder about it. 69 weeks have come and gone. The 70th week has yet to come. And Israel looms large. And we declare our friendship with that nation our appreciation of that nation in a, in a fair-handed way, asking them to be responsible world citizens, to be loving people, to allow others to be um, their fellow citizens as well, to live on their land as well, not to say you can't go there, um, but to say we are people of the Judeo-Christian faith, right? We came out of what God promised to Abraham in the Abrahamic covenant. As we conclude, just this whole idea of covenant, again, is a delightful understanding. When I um, conduct weddings, I usually come to the point of talking about the rings that people are giving each other. And I'll say, these rings are the sign of your marriage covenant. And then I'll say, covenant's not a word we use very often. But I'll try to explain what we understand by covenant. And covenant is one of the most beautiful human words for us to employ. It, it means that there's something we've committed ourselves to. There's something that is deeply held. Um, as, as Deb said, it's, it's, it's part of our values. Um, and, and God has chosen to be known by us as someone who makes covenants. And that's where the psalm comes up again and again, and we say, in the morning, we're going to celebrate his covenant loyalty, his chesed loyalty. And, and we realize that the more we can, you know, sort of stand on that loyalty, the more beautiful our lives are. To know every single morning that God is in covenant with us, and you know the whole story of the in the old covenant. He never, ever broke his covenant with his people. As faithless as they were and as faithless as we are, 
God would remind them and us that he has never, ever, ever broken his covenant. So in, in the middle of the story of Esther, they might have said, where's God? Has God broken his covenant to allow a villain to come and obliterate his people? God had not forgotten his covenant. They couldn't see him behind the scenes. God is in covenant with us. And although we are faithless covenant keepers many times, when we have to acknowledge that we've broken covenant, we've not been loyal, just as his Old Testament, Old Covenant people broke their faith. We do too. But even in the middle of our breach of covenant, God is still a covenant keeper. Even when we wonder whether God is even paying attention, he's still a covenant keeper. And in back of the lives that we live, I think we're, we're often so delightfully surprised by the fact that even though things were going terribly south, when we look back, we realize that God was doing some things, that he was there even when we thought he wasn't, because God would want to tap us on the shoulder and say, I'm still a covenant keeper. I'm, I'm still faithful to you. I'm still your father. I'm still Abba. No matter where you are, no matter how hard it is, no matter how bad you're being, I will not be. I will not be absent. I will always be behind the scenes. And when the story of you is told, um, there will be the ability to discern that God was in a covenant with you and he was keeping you and he was working in you and for you and through you. This week, um, I had silly little things happen um, with my eye. And, you know, you look back and you wonder what went on. Well, in the middle of it, there's this person who spoke up for me and then another person who spoke up for me. And you think, that that's kind of interesting. Um, one of them um, came out. Uh, so I had this, you know how you have floaters in your eye? Well, I had a big floater in my eye. It looked like a shadow. So, you know, when that happens, they're afraid that the retina is going to detach or something. So get to your optometrist. Optometrist can't see you. Get to your doctor. Doctor won't see you. Go to emerge. Okay, go to emerge and sit and wait. And then the emerge doc says, no, you need to go to an ophthalmologist. So tomorrow you go to the ophthalmologist. So the whole week was basically my eye and coming to the end of it and saying it's fine. But as I was in the ophthalmologist's office and, you know, watching my watch because I had a wedding to do, a lady came out and she said, you're an officiant, right? I said, yeah. She said, well, you married me last year. And I said, oh, that's good. So she went and next thing I knew, I was called into the ophthalmologist's office, like right then. And afterwards I thought, okay, that, that's just nice. That just happened. And then maybe God taps you and says, no, I do work behind the scenes. So sometimes you wish I would do more. Sometimes you don't notice what I do. Uh, and it, it all worked out well, all, apart from the fact that they dilate your pupils. And if you try to read anything within four hours, so there's a couple who are married, but they wonder about some of the things I said because they don't know what they meant. But my eyes fixed up afterwards just nonsense except that 
behind the story of all of us is a covenant-keeping God. And an example of that, a very powerful example of that, is that in behind the story of Israel is a covenant-keeping God. And so we are friends, and we, we are also those who try to understand and discern the future. And we focus on Israel, wondering how this world is turning and what it's going to look out or look as um, in the context of God fulfilling the covenant that he made to Abraham that he would bless the whole world because of what he started with them. That's it. That's my math lesson for today. Shame on you all for not being able to count better or do your work. Ah, and kudos to someone who was educated under the old system. <laughs>